Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Secret Policeman's Tour at the Manchester Palace. Please welcome to the stage your hosts for this evening, Amnesty Ambassador Deborah Francis-White. to see so many of you for financial reasons. It's always nerve-wracking. But you know, I'm always, always excited to come to Manchester, almost over any city in the whole world. The one thing I think about Manchester is you guys know how to bring a rock concert to a comedy show! Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Can I have a big round of applause for Lizzie Wharton, who's our sign language interpreter this evening? Excellent. Thank you very much, Lizzie. Um, And here we are tonight for Amnesty, uh, mobilising public campaigns together. Uh, Now, there are a lot of shows like this that raise awareness, but I was thinking, what is awareness, really, if we're not going to do anything with it? Awareness without action just leads to depression. I think often people think amnesty, political prisoners, end of story. It's not true. Amnesty are working really hard for climate change now. And some of you may a couple of fans of climate change, presumably presumably fans of not climate change. Um, But when you think about it, air is a human right. I mean, being able to live not below water, a human right. I'm a big fan of living not below water. Anyone else not got gills? Give us a cheer. There you go, all of us, all of us. Fish will be fine. Uh, What we're doing now, I think, actually, uh, is preparing the planet for optimal conditions for a soon-to-be-evolved being uh, that thrives in a hotter, wetter climate. Uh, The Earth will be fine. Uh, We're making it inhospitable for ourselves. And so Amnesty is working very hard uh, to fight climate change. Greta Thunberg has just been awarded the Amnesty Ambassador of Conscience Award. Um, Amnesty has been working with the youth-led Friday for Our Future climate change strikes, um, helping the children who are taking days off school and taking them seriously and saying, yes, we're going to work together. Also, just give us a cheer if you're already a member of Amnesty or sometimes support their online efforts. Well done. Thank you very much. In that case, you are to thank uh, because members were incredibly helpful and, in fact, really vital and important in signing petitions, spreading the word, and putting pressure on MPs to decriminalise abortion and same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, One of the things they did was have the Derry Girls lead a charge uh, right to Westminster, and uh, that was apparently the thing that did it. Uh, They were like, 
No, 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 no. Dairy Girls, fair play. Uh, that's the thing that did it. So if you got involved in that, don't think it doesn't work. If nobody asks for it, if nobody demands it, if nobody cares about it, MPs do not just get up and go, oh, I really want to do this all on my own and I've got no pressure from the electorate, but I reckon I'll be able to pass it through. It doesn't happen, um, especially something as controversial as that. It was really, really down to you guys working with Amnesty and other supportive lobbying groups that changed that law. So give yourselves a big round of applause for that. If you're not currently a member, over this evening, you may think, do you know what, I would like to be involved in this. This is a nice place to be, and this is a really nice, nice atmosphere. And over the evening, give it some thought. I don't want to ruin the show for you, but also spend most of your time thinking about human rights <laughs> as you're watching the comedy. But sit there conflicted, thinking, perhaps I should be doing more. Don't, don't. Enjoy the comedy. Think that in between the comedians. Give your full attention to the comedians, but as one is walking on or off, think, I should be doing more. <laughs> Just each time you think, oh, that was such a brilliant piece of comedy, I should be doing more. Sort of, so, so when I say the name of the comedian, get everyone to applaud, that's your trigger point, like a Pavlovian dog thinking, I should be doing more for human rights, I could be doing more for human rights. And reality is, we're kind of lucky and relatively free. Um, so if not us who's going to do this and we better act now before any more of our rights are diminished not saying that they will be just saying <laughs> act fast <laughs> join amnesty now Ser- seriously join amnesty now that's what i'm saying um I myself, I think, got much more interested and motivated uh, to engage with human rights uh, when I started working with refugees, and I actually had a Syrian refugee called Steve Ali come to live with my husband and me, and I sort of started to kind of get it. I started to get what it meant to have your human rights taken away, because when I met Steve, who's now like a sort of brother or grown-up son to me, uh, he didn't have any human rights, and I didn't really get what that meant until he got them back. He came into the kitchen with this card that said... He now had political asylum, and he hugged me for like five minutes, honestly. I mean, I'm quite English, it got awkward. Um, It's like, honestly, have you ever been hugged standing up for five minutes by someone you're not in a romantic relationship with? It goes on, it really goes on. But it was amazing, because he said, it's like every bad thing that's ever happened to me is falling off this card. Um, Because this card represents my legal right now to see a doctor if I'm ill. This card means, if I need a lawyer, I'm allowed a lawyer. This card means there is one patch of ground on the earth where I'm allowed to stand and breathe the air. It's a really remarkable thing, watching someone get their human rights back, and it makes you appreciate yours. I remember that day, he's looking at the card, he said, I just, I feel numb. After all this time of wanting this, I I just don't know how to feel. I don't feel anything. And I said, well, Steve, the human brain is a lot like the home office. It takes a while to process things. Um... This time of year now will forever remind me of Steve coming to stay because it's Christmas! That's right. And it was Steve's first Christmas because he'd been raised Muslim and he hadn't had a Christmas. And in Syria, they hadn't had a lot of access to Western media um, or films or anything like that. And he wasn't allowed to watch that stuff anyway, but there was an embargo. So he didn't have any working knowledge of Christmas. So there were all sorts of surprises for him, like indoor trees. Um, And... (laughs) He just didn't, he was just like, I have no working understanding of what's going on. When it came to Santa Claus, he was quite mystified. He said, so you tell children a burglar's going to break in, and that's why they should go to sleep. 
aren't they frightened? And we're like, no, because the burglar's going to leave stuff, not take stuff. Even so, it does feel intrusive. And he was like, what? Why? Why do you tell your children this? I was like, what happens at eat? He said, the grown-ups, they know. Give them money in daylight hours. When it's safe. And they said, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Grandfather. I'll spend my money. I was like, no one breaks in ever. No one breaks in. So after we'd sort of done a few Christmassy things, I decided, one of his friends who he knew in the jungle, who was only like 16, 17 in the jungle, and he was newly here, and um, he was living with someone he didn't really know very well, so we organised for him to go to a friend's for Christmas lunch. I have a friend who has what she calls a, a waifs and gays Christmas lunch, and uh, it was like a more than merrier thing. So he said, right, I'll go there. But I said, I think he needs a stocking. And I said to Steve, what would he like in his stocking? And he went, I don't... He said, I don't really know. I said, but you knew him in the jungle. He was like your little brother in the Calais jungle. He was like, I said, what did he want when he was in the jungle? And he went, firewood. (laughs) All of our tastes ran to firewood and food. Put that in. So anyway, I got a few things that I thought, you know, someone who was 18, 19 would like. And I put it in the stocking. And we all actually went to see this play. Did anyone see this play called The Jungle? Which was about the Calais jungle. It was at the Young Vic Theatre. And I put the stocking inside a plastic bag. And I went up and I saw you, you standing out the front of the theatre. And I gave him the uh, plastic bag and I said to him, that's from Santa Claus. And he took the bag and said, oh, thank you very much. And then we were all standing around chatting, waiting to go into the theatre. And he sort of sidled over to me and he went... Sorry, who, who's this bag from? <laughs> I said, it's Santa Claus. And he said, you're not allowed to open it till the 25th of December. And he went, what? <laughs> I went, it's from Santa Claus. And he said, don't open it till the 25th of December. And he went, I don't know this guy. <laughs> and I went, Santa Claus. And he went, yeah. He said, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he said, I've just got my papers. I can't take this into a crowded theatre. <laughs> And then one of the other guys went, Baba Noel. He went, oh, Baba Noel, Baba Noel. Okay, 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 okay. Um, so he took his sack full of firewood uh, in, inside. Um, anyway, the following year, we, had, we opened our flat to refugees at home. Um, now, this is a great thing to do. If you've got a spare bed at Christmas and you would like to have somebody for your family Christmas to dilute the deep tension that exists in your family... If you want everyone else to behave better and not be difficult and not bring up old things that don't matter, and if you want your racist uncle just to have to sit and suck it up, call refugees at home and say, we've got a space for a refugee, or you might even have space for a family, or if you're going away for your family Christmas, you can let them have your flat or your house. And this sweet chap called Ari turned up. He was Kurdish, he was gay, he had to run because he was gay and people had found out he was going to be killed. He was a solicitor, he was in his 20s, he was also a part-time model, which annoyed Steve a bit because Steve is known as being the most handsome refugee. And I said, oh, I think we found a refugee as handsome as you, Steve. And he went, what? Show me. And I, he went, he's probably not very bright when he's a lawyer. And he went, well, I bet his English isn't very good. I said, according to his CV, he's translated a number of Sylvia Plath letters. That's <laughs> true. Published, published. Uh, And he was like, who is this guy? And he said, well, he's not staying long. Um, So so Ari turns up and Steve says, I think Santa won't know where Ari is because he's spent the last three nights at Waterloo Station and obviously he's just pitched up. So he went out and he bought him a stocking. When he came back, I looked at it and said, Steve, that's a stocking for a cat. (laughs) And he went, 
these Christmas traditions just get fucking weirder. Who gets a stocking for a cat? I said, people do. He said, it never occurred to me. I said, I see why, no, yeah. And in the stocking for a cat, bless him, um, <laughs> he'd put a globe of the world. And he said, the reason I've put in a globe is I want him to know that the world is his oyster. And then he'd put a topped up oyster card. And he said, because I want him to know that the oyster is his London. <laughs> and a little jar of Marmite. And he said, because I think he should know the worst excesses of integration right now. <laughs> and Ari cried on Christmas morning. And this story is in the book last Christmas. Proceeds go to the Refugee Council and uh, also Crisis. Uh, pick up a copy. It's in Waterstones. It's actually really, really lovely stories. I've got a story in there. Meryl Streep's got a story in there. Same. Um, <laughs> Olivia Coleman, me. Graham Norton, me. Uh, same. All same. Uh, they're really, really beautiful, but there are some lovely ones from refugees. So go and pick that up. It's really beautiful. And if you want to know what else happened around that Christmas, which you do, because I've left it on such a cliffhanger. <laughs> Are you ready for an incredible Christmas show? Yeah. Are you ready for your first act? Yeah. Then put your hands together and make incredible woohoo noises. For the first comedian, she's all over the television. You can't turn it on without her there for good reason. Put your hands together and make incredible woohooing noises for the wonderful Susie Ruffle! Hi guys! How are we doing? Are we alright? Okay, I've got five minutes of material, so we're going to have to get into it quick. And I've never worked with uh, a BSL interpreter before, and I apologise already. Uh, so, my big news is that I've recently got engaged. Thank you to a girl, in case anyone's interested. My hair is not an accident. And just out here waiting for Sue Perkins to retire. And so, uh, my girlfriend and I are thinking about maybe having children. That's sort of the next thing that we want to do. Now, I'm not sure if there's any scientists in the room, but one or two of you might have twigged we are missing one key ingredient. Okay? Because we got wombs. Oh! We got wombs for days, you know? We got a womb with a view of another womb if we face each other. Little gag for the readers. But we, uh... People getting it? Uh, but we haven't, got, we haven't got any sperm. Cool. Uh, why not? And, uh... I said that to one of my female friends. I was like, oh, we haven't got any sperm. And she said, why don't you ask one of the boys? Now, most of my best friends that are men are male stand-up comedians. How I'm going to slip that into conversation post-gig. All right, mate, I love you, but on breadsticks, any heart disease in the family? Just into that. I think it'll be weird. I think it'll be weird. So I thought, I'll go to the doctor, find out if I'm a fertile myrtle. So I went to the doctor and said, hello, I'd like to know if I'm a fertile myrtle. I've got a womb with a view of another womb. We face each other. We haven't got any. And he said, if you carry on talking like that, I won't treat you. And I said, that is fair enough. Uh, it is an absolute treat to perform with such brilliant people and to support this charity. What an honour. Thank you very much. My name's Susie. Cheers. Good night. Uh, are you ready for your next incredible comedian? Yeah. Then put your hands together and make incredible woohooing noises for the incredible Tiff Stevenson! Hi! It's 
So what's been happening? Oh, um, I turned 40, dyed my hair pink, bought a convertible and moved to Hollywood. Midlife crisis! <laughs> Let's all enjoy my midlife crisis. What was I thinking? Um, I went to LA very specifically. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Los Angeles, but there's a certain type of woman from Los Angeles who talks like a voice is running out of batteries. <laughs> Have you ever heard this woman? They call it the vocal fry. Because <laughs> men find it sexy when you sound like you're on 20%. <laughs> Please plug me in. <laughs> also, I drink there to a level they find unacceptable. <laughs> oh my God, Tiffany, why are you drinking so much? Oh my God. <laughs> because I'm talking to you. Please let me have this. As soon as you reveal that you're British, they want to talk to you about the royals, like immediately, because they assume you care. Um, but you must love them. What about Meghan and Harry? Oh my God, Tiffany, you love Meghan Markle? Do you love Meghan? You should love Meghan Markle. She is living the dream. I'm like, what kind of fever cheese dream is this? Here's the reality of what's happened to Meghan Markle. She's gone from successful actress with autonomy to public servant with racist in-laws. <laughs> right? Meghan Markle's living in a real-life version of the film Get Out. <laughs> I imagine every time Prince Philip opens his mouth, she goes to the sunken place. <laughs> the voice has authority... It's weird, isn't it? I want to talk a little bit about class because I do feel like it's a big topic and we never really tackle it enough. Like, I, you know, I'm a working-class person. How many working-class people in the... <laughs> Someone put their hand up. No. Um... <laughs> there's a way you can tell. There's a little litmus test you can take to see if you're working-class. You're definitely working-class if you know someone a bit dodgy. <laughs> you refer to them by using their first name twice. So I might say to my mum, I saw Steve the other day. And she'll go, what? Steve, Steve. <laughs> you say someone's first name twice, you know they've done a ten stretch. <laughs> it's not a Pilates move, by the way. <laughs> uh, I've been Tiff Stevenson. Have a great night. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. An exciting part of the evening now. Uh, we're going to the sofa. It's like I'm um, Graham Norton and Jeremy Paxman all in one. And I've realised this skirt is not appropriate. <laughs> it's good standing up, though, isn't it? I think we can all agree. What a great, nice little outfit standing up, isn't it? I'm going to sit down again and hope that this skirt is more appropriate. I might sit in a chair. Well, that. Hold on, let me see if I can... just made that noise has forgotten what a great feminist I am. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but thank you. <clears throat> what an inappropriate segue to this next bit, which is more serious. In Greece, you can go to prison for trying to save a life. That's not an appropriate segue now, is it? I can't. I'll have to do another segue. 
Amnesty International is all about human rights. That'll bridge the gap, okay? <laughs> human rights are important. You've got them, I've got them. We don't want to lose them. <clears throat> In Greece, you can go to prison for trying to save a life. That's a, now, that's a good segue now. That's an appropriate slide out of my legs and into something sad. <laughs> I've created a number of bridges there. So it happened to Sean Binder when, as a trained rescuer, he volunteered for a search and rescue organisation in Lesbos. So Sean's job was to help spot boats in distress and help refugees. But Sean and his friend Sarah Mardini ended up behind bars, charged with spying, charged with people smuggling and belonging to a criminal organisation. They spent more than 100 days in prison before being released on bail in December 2018, so this time last year. Now, if they're found guilty, they could be jailed for 25 years. I mean, I know I want to meet uh, Sean Binder and hear more about it. Do you? Yeah. Then please, welcome to the stage, the incredible Sean Binder! So I'm not very well at the moment. Um, I, I spent the day in bed and then sort of got off on the train to do this. And everyone else was just like, I don't care, give me a hug. Sean was like, do not fucking touch me. <laughs> is there a specific reason you don't want to get sick or is that just always how you feel, Sean? Hypochondriac. Are you? No, I'm not, but uh, just you. It's just kidding. <laughs> if you're sick. No, I'm not, but it's just you. <laughs> Sean, you're teasing me. Now, uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and then what happened to you when you were in Lesbos? Yeah, sure. So I'm Sean, I'm 25 years old, and I grew up in Ireland. I guess what's important is when I went off to college, I studied European defence and security policy here in London, and that's when I learned that the way that Europe is responding to one of the most severe humanitarian crises to befall Europe almost ever is by securing our border against those people most in need, right? So what we literally do is we outsource our border control infrastructure to third countries with really poor human rights records at the expense of providing people with their human right to seek asylum. And because I'm a rescue diver and I have worked in uh, search and rescue before, I felt that I have some of the skills, I understand the policy context, and I have some of the skills to go and help out. So that's why I went to Lesbos. So you went out to do these rescue missions, and then what happened next? Essentially, the Mediterranean is the most dangerous sea in the world right now, right? 18,900 people have lost their lives there. And those are, not all of them, but many of them are preventable, right? If we had search and rescue in the water, but we don't have that. And that's why I joined a civilian rescue organization called ERCI, and we provided medical teams for both on land and offshore uh, rescue missions. And that's what I did, always in relationship with the authorities like Frontex and NATO. Um, but we were arrested. And as you said, we were arrested for really, really heinous crimes. So being part of a criminal organization, essentially smuggling, money laundering, I did economics, I would not manage to do this, and even spying. And although that's a personal dream of mine fulfilled, that's not the way I'd hope to do it. And Maybe don't say that, though, because you still, <laughs> the case is still pending. That's right, so the, the case is still pending. Um, we are still awaiting trial, and if we're found guilty, we'll spend 25 years in prison for what Human Rights Watch said was the criminalization of saving lives, and, and that's it. Is that, that must be terrifying. Are you well, concerned that you could be found guilty for these things? Well, so... Although there are such serious accusations and charges, when you break down, when I was in prison, we gave our case file to lots of legal organizations to, have a, to review them. They say that we're spies because we used encrypted communication services, which sounds super nefarious and dodgy. What they don't say to the prosecution is that's WhatsApp. We use WhatsApp, enter encryption, there you go, you're a spy. 
I face 12 counts. For seven of them, I'm not even in the country. I'm verifiably from, in London for my graduation for one of them. Um, so they're completely vacuous. And that, for me, gives me hope. But when you then step back, if there is no evidence, and we're being charged with that, then is there something more to this? When you step back across Europe, including in the UK, there have been about 158 individuals who have been prosecuted. I got an email uh, of solidarity from a guy called Pastor Norbert Valley. He was criminalized because he let asylum seekers sleep on his church pews during a storm. And that was considered, well, that's essentially tantamount to smuggling. What? Yeah. Yeah. It's sounding suspiciously like 1930s Germany. It's very terrifying, saying that one life, if you didn't fish a Greek life out of the water, you could probably be charged for that if you just watched somebody drown. But if you do fish this life out of the water, somebody maybe who's from Syria or Iraq, then you can actually go to jail for it. And we're really, really into terrifying territory at this point. That's it, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, every bit of international law sanctions this kind of work. It's an obligation to respond to somebody who's drowning out at sea. It's an obligation to allow people to seek asylum. It's an obligation to allow people to be healthy and safe. And um, what we're doing is, that should not be clapped. Those are fundamental rights that is, that is not praiseworthy. It should not be considered special. I, I think since being released, people have either said, oh, you're, you're a hero or you're a criminal. And those are problematic for the same reason. Helping is the most normal thing. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we praise it for being heroic or say it's criminal, we just normalize not helping. And that's, I think, where we are at the moment. And that's mm -hmm. why it's so important to just to really call it what it is. It is the most basic thing. This is about letting people drown in the ocean. There's nothing more to it. It seems absolutely implausible, but this is where we are, and we really do have to fight this. What was it like for you in prison? Not ideal. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go to prison, do it on a Greek island, I'd say, but um, no, it's, it's shite. It's horrible. I mean, it was incredibly frustrating to be in prison for having done nothing wrong, and I think that people ask, like, do you regret doing it? Because if you had known what would have happened, and when my mom's around, I always say, I completely regret it, and I would never do it again. But we, we can't, what, what, what would you actually be regretting? You'd be regretting helping people who are in need of assistance. That is never something that you should regret. It's like checking someone's passport when you arrive at the scene of a car crash rather than just assisting them. Mm -hmm. You don't do that. You, you provide the assistance. We, we have no bearing on who gets asylum or who doesn't. That is a, a different process. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes we conflate these things and politicize it. It is an apolitical act. Okay, so you're part of Right for Rights, the Amnesty Campaign. And there's information on Amnesty's website about how we can get involved in writing to the Greek authorities to ask them to drop the charges against you. This is something that really does work because, of course, Greece doesn't want terrible, terrible publicity. So if loads of people are writing and making a big noise about it, it is in their interest to drop those charges. So this really will work. If everybody in this audience tonight uh, wrote and said, hey, we really, really don't want this, that would make a big impact on how the Greek government understood they were being perceived by the wider world. How else would you like people to get involved? I think Right Rights is an amazing way to do that. Another thing that I've found is, since being released, people have asked me, how can I get involved in search and rescue or, or do things like that? I think it's important to note that we don't have to fly halfway across the world or go to really distant places to help. What I've noticed, um, I pay off my bail on the weekend in a health food store at the moment because it's been really hard to find a job. Anyway, I work with a colleague of mine who has polar opposite views of my own. Like, doesn't climate change is a leftist conspiracy to make money, for instance. All migrants are terrorists. And my initial reaction was, okay, I'm going to step back. I don't want to have anything to do with this person at all. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the microcosm of polarization that's actually leading to the kinds of policies we see today is because we're not having a conversation about what values we share. So I think it's important that we all reach out to people in our community. I think... 
what underlines some of these policies is the fact that there is a lot of fear and distrust in community nowadays. And of course we should reject racism and misinformation wherever we see it, but we reach out to those people who might be swayed by it and try to build a consensus. People often say, you know, your kind of work is you're threatening European values, European values of peace and of justice. The irony is that when you criminalize help and let people drown in our oceans, as we currently do, we've already lost those values of peace and of justice. So building that consensus and reaching out to people in my community or in our community to try and better these laws is also incredibly valuable. Okay. Are you really paying off your bail by working in a health food shop? <laughs> so, I mean, I wouldn't give me a job either, obviously, because I'm either a criminal or I can't honor a contract. So I've been doing some research consultancy here and there, but yes, I work off. And I know lots of things about How much have now. you got left to pay? Um, I'm working off about 10,000 at the moment. Oh my but God. I'm sorry. No one should be paying 10,000 pounds or euros off because you've gone and done something humanitarian. That's crazy and I, I, not I, okay. And I appreciate all that, but I think the focus should still be, and we often forget that because I'm on a couch on a stage, the people who are actually suffering. Like if Sarah and I go to prison, that's unfortunate, but it's not like I'm currently at risk of drowning. And so the focus should really be on the, the structural issues that are causing people to actually die. And we rights. will do right for rights, won't we? <laughs> Seriously, it will make a big difference. It could be the difference between Sean and Sarah going to jail actual jail or not actual jail. So can I get some kind of commitment that everybody will just take the three minutes out of their day, go to the website and do the thing? Sean, it's been a genuine, genuine pleasure and privilege to meet you and hear from you and be educated by you. You really are better than we are and always will be. It's Sean Binder, everybody! To support Sarah and Sean, please visit amnesty.org.uk forward slash right, W-R-I-T-E. We can also find out more about Amnesty's Global Right for Rights campaign to help other people. Please go there right now. It's really important and it really works. So it comes to this part of the evening where if you'd like to get involved more... I mean, the great thing about having someone like Sean on is it does make it very, very real. We need Amnesty now. The thing is, Amnesty needs you. All Amnesty is is a collection of human beings. It isn't really anything more than that. So you being involved means Amnesty is what it is. And some of you are thinking, I have no time or money, and we all feel like that. But we all have a little bit of time, and most of us have a little bit of money. So what you can do is join. So what you're going to do, because you've fallen in love with Sean and you want to get involved, you are going to become a member of Amnesty International. Um, you get a welcome pack with a membership card that you can keep in your wallet. Who doesn't love a membership card? You get a quarterly Amnesty magazine uh, where you can read about what's going on. You get information about current issues. And you get a say in the future of Amnesty. You get an invitation to the AGM. It's £4 a month or £48 a year or it's £1 a month or £12 a year for concessions. Uh, you can join Amnesty on your phone at amn.st forward slash Manchester. It's going to make you feel like you're doing something. I've realised I've sat on the inappropriate couch. 
I'm just standing in ways that I've seen people stand during Fashion Week. <laughs> to distract you from the fact that I've sat on the sofa in an inappropriate skirt. So you're going to go to amn.st forward slash Manchester. You just have one less cappuccino every now and again. That's all it is. And you're going to be plugged into something really, really important. I mean, this law where people fish people out of the sea and then get called a spy and a smuggler, this is not isolated, gang. If we're not going to get involved and plug into this now and actually see if we can put some pressure on some of these governments, we could lose a lot of what we have. Before you get really involved and become a member of Amnesty tonight, this is the night that you're going to become a member of Amnesty and say, yeah, I'm going to get involved, I'm going to plug in, and I'm occasionally going to do something. I'm occasionally going to get connected and get involved. And if you think it doesn't make a difference, then abortion Northern Ireland, equal marriage Northern Ireland, it does make a difference. People have been freed and things have been done. And if enough of us make a kick off, the truth is, Sean and Sarah won't go to prison if enough of us kick off. Are enough of us going to kick off? Are you going to do rights for rights? Now, some of you will know that the secret policeman goes right back to the 1970s. And it started with Monty Python. Um, There was a sketch done that night that we like to do every time, uh, partly out of respect and partly with our updated twist. Um, Now, if this sketch was written today, it would be called the Oppression Olympics. But we thought, how can we update this Oppression Olympics, this sketch about... Four people saying what a tough time they've had. Because who has had it even harder than four Yorkshire men? And the answer is... Four Yorkshire women, put your hands together for Mandip Gill, Sinetra Sarka, Juliet Stevenson and Tiff Stevenson! like a good glass of Chateau de Chasselier, eh, Mrs. Josiah? Eh, you are dead right there, Mrs. O'Dyer. Dead right. Who'd have thought 40 years ago we'd be sitting here drinking Chateau de Chasselier? (laughs) (laughs) We'd have been glad of the price of a cup of tea, then. (laughs) A cup of cold tea (laughs) without sugar and milk. (laughs) Or tea. (laughs) Out of a crack cup at that. We never had a cup. (laughs) We drank out of a rolled-up newspaper. (laughs) Best we could manage was to suck on a piece of damp cloth. And we were mad for it. But, you know, I often think we were happier then. Although we were poor. Because we were poor. Aye, I know my old mum used to say to me, she said, money won't bring you happiness, our kid. You were right. Oh, I were happier then when we had nothing. We used to live in a tiny, tumble-down old house with great big holes in roof. House. (laughs) You were lucky to have a house. We used to live in a toilet backstage at Hacienda. (laughs) 26 of us, no furniture. Half the floor were missing. We were all huddled in corner with one lousy glow stick between us. 
being deafened by 24-hour acid house for fear of being suffocated by a bucket hat. In a toilet backstage at Hacienda? Give over. You were lucky to have a toilet backstage at Hacienda. We had to live under bed at Labour Ward. Oh. Undead bed at Labour Ward? I used to dream of living under bed at Labour Ward. That would have been a palace to us. We used to live in the men's changing room, a pure gym gymnasium. <laughs> Every morning we got woke up by Stone Roses playing Screamer Delicate at 10,000 decibels. And having a load of locker room talk dumped on us. Labour Ward. House. <laughs> well, 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 when I say house, I mean, it were only a hole in ground covered by a few bits of canvas, but it were a house to us. We were evicted from our hole in the ground. We had to go and live back inside our mother's womb. <laughs> you were lucky to have a womb. There were over 150 of us living in an empty box of Tampax. In middle of the road. Super plus? Aye. You were lucky! <laughs> we lived for three months in the gender pay gap. <laughs> Every morning we have to get up at six, clean out the gap, eat a crust of stale butty. Then we'd have to work 14 hours at mill, day in, day out, for half the wage the men were getting, and they were on unpaid internships. <laughs> when we come home, the patriarchy would thrash us to sleep with its penis. <laughs> Luxury! <laughs> we used to get up at three, clean the inside of our mother's womb, eat a handful of hot gravel and be grateful for it. Then we'd work in mill for 20 hours for twopence a month in high heels. Then we'd come home and the mithering patriarchy would beat us around the head and neck with a can of links. Africa. <laughs> if we were lucky. Paradise. That sounds like that to me. Oh, we had it tough. I used to have to get out of my box of Tampax at midnight, look sexy and innocent. Well, lick it road clean. <laughs> Eat a couple of bits of cold gravel while arbitrating Britpop arguments between Oasis and Blur. Work 23 hours a day at a mill for a penny every four years. And when we got home, the patriarchy used to slice it in half with a cutting jibe about my thighs. <laughs> right. <laughs> we used to get up in the morning at half past ten at night, half an hour before we'd gone to bed, <laughs> eat a lump of low-carb, sugar-free Weight Watchers' own brand poison, work 29 hours a day at mill for a hairpenny a lifetime, then we'd come home and each night the cocking patriarchy would slit our throats with a shard from the glass ceiling and bury us in historical obscurity! <laughs> but you try and tell that to the young people of today. <laughs> Will they believe you? No. no.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. We've got some incredible spoken word for you. Put your hands together and make incredible noises for the wonderful Jackie Hagen! Um, so, uh, my name's Jackie Hagen, and you might notice that where uh, many of you have got a tube of meat, I've got a glorified stick. Um, so, for the cheap seats, uh, one, two, three... Woo! Oh, nice. Actually, I felt like that deserved a little bit more. I've had my leg off here. One, two, three. Woo! <laughs> All right, that was a bit much. Um, and um, that's because I had my leg off five years ago, and when I left the hospital, they gave me a list of things to avoid, and one of them was falling over. <laughs> and a few things start happening when you have your leg off. First of all, you get called brave every five minutes, just for anything, just for like eating a Twix. And every taxi driver tells me that I could be a Paralympian. (laughs) I mean, you could be an Olympian, couldn't you? And uh, when I was in hospital, I was in for ages, right? And it was like a boot camp in Copen. And I used to be shit at life, right? I didn't eat my crusts until the age of 30. Um, I couldn't put a double duvet cover on without getting stuck inside at least twice. Uh, and then while I was in hospital, there was, like, there was two women who were integral to my personal development while I was there. One was Barbara, the nurse, who has a face like a hen party. <laughs> And the other one was Edna, who was in the next bed to me for five months. Now, Edna was 73, and she looked like a threadbare tennis ball with eyes. (laughs) And Edna hated Scousers. (laughs) Manx, tea, coffee, swearing, Toddlers, wisdom, <laughs> jumble sales, my tattoos, my hair, my face, <laughs> me, and above all, nurses. Now, I fucking loved Edna, you know, she had balls, I was imagining her in leather. Um, so, so, this piece is dedicated to Edna, wherever she may be, and this is a list of advice for people like me. 
um, to get from one end of the day to the other, and it's called You Can't See Through Another Man's Eyelids. <laughs> one. Don't cut off your face to spite someone else's face. <laughs> Two. Don't cut off your face. <laughs> Three. A bold sweet pause in someone else's mouth doesn't necessarily mean it's time for you to speak. Four. You're probably not as ugly as you think you are. You are a generous buffet of crisps. <laughs> Five. The minimum fill line on a kettle is real. <laughs> Six. Don't be mean to fumble and people the wet effort they put into punchlines. People can fly when you don't make them feel self-conscious about it. Seven, romanticise the repetitive glunk. Eight, give your pets a heroic aura. <laughs> Nine, I come from a town where the barmaids have tits and the fellas are homophobic, but in a nice way. <laughs> You're weird and you're short and your ma tells me you're gay, but I knew your dad and he was witty and so are you. You're all right, you love, you are. Weird hair. <laughs> Ten. If you're working class, you inherit anger. If you're middle class, you inherit manners and a house. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah! The amount of shit I get for that line, Jesus Christ. <laughs> when you're out having a fag afterwards. So, I can reliably tell you that the middle classes are not inheriting houses anymore. <laughs> and apparently, it's all my fault. <laughs> 11. The fight for sexual equality is not between men and women, it's between people and dickheads. <laughs> yeah. They're all right, aren't they? They're all right, Lizzie. Yeah. 12, no one looks like Kate Moss, including Kate Moss. 13. <laughs> 13. If I could stay in that moment where the tennis ball reaches its height and takes a breath, before remembering to fall, in that moment, sunset feels like acceptance. 14, unsolicited advice can make you sound like a tool. Thank you, clap. <laughs> I'm not going, just going there. I'm just sitting down, that's all. So, when things get hard, I think of things that I'm grateful for. Scousers, manks, tea, coffee, swearing, toddlers, wisdom, jumble cells, my tattoos, my face, my hair, me, and above all, nurses. Thank you very much, I'm done. So, you know, live your lives, fear away from heroin, love your mothers, you'll be fine. Cheers, see ya. <laughs>
why I love this job. You never know what's going to happen at a live gig. You never know. Um, this is what I've wanted to do. Like, when I was a little kid, all I wanted to do, my height, by the way, is to be a stand-up comic. I'm having too good a time, but overexcited. Relax. Um, I always wanted to be a comedian. And when I was a little kid, I didn't know what this job was. I thought I wanted to be an actor. And I just did some acting earlier. <laughs> Other people get on the stage with you. <laughs> and, and they're allowed to talk. <laughs> so I always wanted to do this job, and it's massively to do with my father. Now, my father is a poet, and he got into trouble in Iran, where I'm from. Um, and, oh, you know what they're like there. Oh, don't like your poems, kill you. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of my first ever jokes was that there's freedom of speech in Iran, but there's no freedom after you've spoken. <laughs> that joke is 20 years old. Thank you. And... <laughs> But he's also a very rambunctious man that didn't always remember he had children. When, with no exaggeration, when we were kids, we would have to join in with my parents' social life. We would have to go to all of their parties six, seven nights a week. And sometimes my children say to me, because my life with them is very different, it's very calm, it's very 7.30, it's bedtime, you've got to go to bed because mummy needs to drink. And <laughs> sometimes my little girl will say to me, mummy, what was it like for you when you were a little girl? And I'll say to her, shall I tell you? Are you cosy? Are you sleeping? Are you nearly dreaming? Given up 70s and 80s kids. Get out of bed, get out of bed. Come on, get up. Go downstairs. Make the guests laugh. Make the guests laugh. Do your Margaret Thatcher impression. Do your Thatcher impression. And I would be six, seven years old, dragged out to do a Thatcher impression for my parents' guests. They would laugh. My dad would go, Oh, they laughed. I have a child worth having. So, no pressure, but like, Audiences, to me, are all my dad. <laughs> and I'm looking to you to love me. And growing up, I never saw anyone like me do stand-up. You need to see a trailblazer to give you the confidence to do something um, out of the ordinary. I don't know what it was about Benny Hill and Jim Davidson that didn't make me feel like I was under the same umbrella. But when I was 17, I went to an actual comedy club in Shoreditch in East London, very different to where I lived in West London. There was weirdly foggier East London. And Jack the Ripper was there sharpening his knives. And there were actual sex workers lying like around the, uh, the comedy club. And I say sex workers and not prostitutes because I have young friends. So, <laughs> by friends, obviously, I mean nannies. And... <laughs> I saw a real comedy club and I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. And the first comedian, this was like in the very early 90s, was a woman. And before she got to the microphone, she got booed off. And that was the moment I realised that there's no other job in the world that I would rather do. And if that's not a personality disorder, I don't know what is. But, 
I went back to school and I told my careers advisor, I know what I want to do, I want to be a stand-up comedian. And she said, oh, that's lovely, I used to want to be a mermaid. Now, <laughs> I went to a big state comprehensive and the attitude then was in the 80s, oh dear, I was very dyslexic, very, I was dyslexic when I was a kid. Um, I'm still now, but no one cares now. Because um, I write for a living. So, anyway, um, she goes, oh dear, your predicted grades aren't very good, are they? Never mind, you're very bubbly, aren't you? You're good with people. We think hotel receptionists. <laughs> now, I am a huge advocate of state school education, but I can't help looking back at that time and thinking how hard I had to fight the attitudes towards me as a state school kid, not being allowed to have dreams bigger than what was ascribed to me if I was in a public school. Because at a good public school, a kid like me would have been treated very differently. Because you pay for self-confidence, right? A good public school kid like me would have been told, Oh dear, your predicted grades aren't very good, are they? Never mind. You're quite quirky, aren't you? Very good with people. We think foreign secretary. <laughs> in fact, in fact. Can we talk about Brexit really quickly? Just very briefly. You won't even notice. You won't even notice. Right, OK. Shh, shh. The referendum was so long, I've forgotten which way I voted. But um, <laughs> during the referendum, um, I found that a lot of my friends who were voting to leave uh, Europe, my friends, obviously, I mean my friends' parents, they would want to talk about it to me. People always want to talk to me about politics just because I've been on Question Time a few times. I'll be honest with you, I do Question Time because a gig is a gig. And what I found, though, they wanted to talk to me because they were so upset about being called racist. They wanted to assure me, a first-generation refugee from Iran, that they were not racist. In fact, you're fine. Shappi, on Radio 4, with you, we'd never even know until we heard your name. So they kind of wanted my approval about how upset they were at more recent immigrants. I will tell you, it was so moving. Nothing has made me feel more accepted and more assimilated in my adopted land than when people who are from from here <laughs> feel comfortable enough to slag off Polish people. <laughs> and then my friend's dad, my boyfriend's dad at the time, I mean, no longer that boyfriend, same dad for him, but... <laughs> he would get frustrated at not getting a rise out of me. So then he would go, at the end of the day, Shappy, at the end of the day, if they don't learn British values, we've got to throw them back in the sea. And I'd feel duty-bound to pipe up, well, what are British values? And he'd go, fairness, tolerance, inclusion. <laughs> now, I've got two children, and they are a perfect example of how you can be raised in the same country by the same mother, different dads, don't judge, but be so wildly different, they might as well be different nationalities. My son's an English gentleman, my daughter's a mad Middle Eastern woman who moved in with us, we're not sure where from. <laughs> My son's sense of humour is British. I said to him when he was eight years old, are you going to brush your teeth? And he went, I've got no idea. I'm not a soothsayer. And I said, don't be such a smart ass." And he said, your ass is smarter, mummy. Yours can speak. <laughs> I'll say to my little girl, darling, should we go upstairs and brush your teeth? You don't tell me what to do. <laughs> you are not the boss of me, mummy, if that is your real name. <laughs> 
You've been so beautiful. And I would like to say in the tradition of my parents, dragging my kids everywhere, there's my daughter Vivi there. I hope you don't mind that impression. She's only six. I've taken her out of school. Please don't tell anyone. Join Amnesty International. Thank you so much. are in any way being diminished uh, just wave or cheer now no she's all right everybody she's all right are you ready for a headline comedy act put your hands together for Nishkiva good evening good evening good evening holy shit <laughs> how's your day been <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell! Let me quickly fill you in. Please don't film this, sir. I've had a little trouble with that in the last 24 hours. <laughs> Let me just briefly fill you in on my last 24 hours, right? Uh, yesterday, I did a gig at a, char a cricket charity and uh, I mentioned Brexit and was booed off stage after someone threw a bread roll at me. So I ask you again, how the fuck has your last 24 hours been? Jesus fucking Christ. Let me tell you about this gig, right? It's for a charity called the Lord's Taverners, who do amazing work. They work with disabled children and disadvantaged children, getting them sporting equipment. So they asked me to do the gig. I said, yeah, of course. I do lots of work with the charity. It's fine. 20 minutes, uh, lunch. You think, how bad can that be? The answer is, I am the number one story on the BBC News website. <laughs> that's, that's how badly it can go, OK? I went on stage. It was a sea of, I'm not going to say white faces, because it's inaccurate, red faces. <laughs> Oh, good Lord. Some of them seem to enjoy cricket so much, they've actually come dressed as the ball. <laughs> I walk out, it's a weird mixture of, like, my friends and then some, like, weird cricket old men and then, like, weird celebrities. So I have this joke. The beginning of the set went well, and I have this joke where I taught, I did a, a gig at a church this year, and I say I really like performing in churches. Uh, one, because they're good comedy venues, because the sight lines are incredible and the acoustics are phenomenal. But two, I think it's nice occasionally for somebody to speak in a church who looks more like Jesus than any fucking picture of Jesus you've ever seen in your entire lives. They whitewashed Jesus. Do you think when Jesus was being crucified, he thought, well, at least they'll remember what race I am. No, they won't, Jesus. You're going to have blonde hair and blue eyes before they dragged you down off that thing. Poor Jesus. He went up there, a Middle Eastern man. He came down looking like the bass player from an indie rock group in the early noughties. Poor Jesus, from the King of Kings to a King of Leon. Now, I did that joke, which I think we can all agree is very funny. Uh, uh, unfortunately, at that gig yesterday, sat on the table right in front of me was Robert Powell, the, <laughs> the original white, G the OG honky Jesus. <laughs> so already the atmosphere is weird, right? Then 
but I sort of, I've got some cricket jokes, it's, and, and, uh, and it's cooking. Then I sort of try and turn the attention sort of to the, you know, I try and sort of say, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to talk too much about politics, but there's an election on, and, you know, these are all very wealthy people. Also, uh, the, uh, you know, Harry Redknapp had already been on, and he was asked who they think he thinks the next Arsenal manager is going to be, and he had said, I don't know, some foreign bloke who can't speak English. Uh, and you're like... So I guess, in a way, politics is fine. Like, so I think <laughs> the gloves are off, politics is fine, right? So I just sort of thought, I'll, I'll tell a joke about Boris Johnson. I'll say, oh, you know, Boris Johnson used the word picking in his, uh, in a national newspaper, which he did in the Daily Telegraph, uh, and picking in is an ancient slur uh, dating back to the 13th or 14th century and is derogatory towards people of African descent. And as such, is the worst type of racism because it's the type of racism where you have to go and look it up. Like, <laughs> don't make us be complete. You have to be like, oh, what? Hold on. <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> now, that was not the reaction at the Lord's Tablet's Cricket Society. Oh, my God. For a group of people who I think consider pepper to be a bit much, things got pretty spicy. <laughs> that, was, that was where the evening started to turn and get away from me. So I thought, well, I'll, do, I'll sort of do some jokes about Theresa May and Jacob Rees-Mogg. That'll calm things down. <laughs> by now, by now, at this point, I'm the captain on the Titanic saying this ship is unsinkable. Like, at this point, I am hurtling. We are seconds away from Winslet pushing Leo off the door. And yet I still cannot see what's happening in front of me because then I say the word Brexit and use the phrase, it's not going very well, at which point I start being supportively heckled by John Burko, the former Speaker of the House. <laughs> he starts going, good, good! And I'm like, I don't think you understand heckling, John. <laughs> it's, it's not normally broadly supportive. I agree with this. <laughs> hey, mate, I don't come down to where you work and say things I think are interesting. <laughs> So now, Burkow is heckling me. At this point, I turn around and see that one of the gammon slices has <laughs> stood up and launched a yeast-based missile in my direction. Now, a lot of these guys are ex-England cricketers uh, from the 70s and the 80s. I don't know how many of you are big cricket fans, but in the 70s and 80s, England were fucking shit. And so the bread roll doesn't even get into my postcode. <laughs> the bread roll goes off, goes off somewhere down towards fine leg. <laughs> sit, sit, I'm actually a left-handed batsman, mate. So <laughs> if you're going to heckle me, I'm going to need you to know specifics about... <laughs> my batting starts. Okay? About lefty, about righty. So now they're very unhappy. People are standing up and yelling. Then a man with a red coat appears. I don't even know whether he worked there. It was like a weed. He looked like one of those weird guys that stands behind the Queen while she apologises for something one of her kids has done. Like, he... <laughs> That sort of guy, he's like wearing a weird jacket. And listen, if you're going to be played out, you may as well be played out with these words. Thank you, Mr. Kumar, but it's time for the raffle. That... 
that was the way that I got removed from the stage. Do you know how galling that is as a comedian to be moved on for the raffle? And, you know, the whole thing is, I'm still processing this, you know, um, stuff is happening, like, I have to go and see the police tomorrow because somebody has sent me a message that is beyond... You know, there's a level of death threat at this point that I just go, fine. (laughs) Crack on. You know, there's generally sort of, I'm going to kill you. You're like, okay, buddy, have a great day. You know, like, there's a level of death threat that if I took the time to deal with, I would not get anything else done. My job would be comedian slash death threat admin. Like, (laughs) but there's been a couple of specific ones that have just come in and now I have to get the police involved. And one of them, and I'm not going to read it out because it's... Phoebe's Shabby's daughter's here. I'm not going to read it out in front of people. But, like, there's one where he's like, I'm going to set you on fire, you immigrant. And then he said, and I have reported your comments to the police. (laughs) You're like, cool, brother. Two can play at that game. (laughs) So, like I say, I'm still processing this. I don't really know uh, what's going to happen with it. But there's a couple of quick things that I would say. One, I spend a lot of my time performing to you people. And I love it. The Guardian munchers. I love you. (laughs) My constituent base. I love you people more than anything, right? But it is sometimes the thing is, if you are going to do what I do, which is essentially bathe in the glow of leftist consensus for money, you have to be prepared occasionally to step outside of that comfort zone and say things to people who may not agree with you, right? I don't necessarily begrudge them the booing. They've got a right to do that. I've got a right to say what I've got to say. They've got a right to say what they've got to say. But I do think two quick things about this. Firstly, right-wing audiences at charity events are shit out of luck. Because the problem is that the only comedians who will come and perform for free are left-wing people. <laughs> so until... These, do you think anyone's getting paid on this bill tonight? No! If you want to get Norcott, you better start saving up charities. <laughs> and the second thing that I think is, in many ways, the mistake was mine. Not just for doing the material, but the mistake was potentially mine because, ultimately, I don't know what I expected when I turned up to perform for an audience of people, most of whom are descended from people who colonised my ancestors. <laughs> that's, what, that's all that's going to happen in these kind of situations. But I do just want to assure, you know, just before I go, all the white people in the room, regardless of what you've read in the newspapers, I bear you no harm. In trueness. Guys! I don't have a... Guys! Guys! I don't have... Guys! I don't hate what... Guys! I will have you know that some of my best friends... (laughs) Hate white people and they're much angrier than me. See you later. Is it possible that they just thought you were a poor comedian, Nish? 
and the charitable act was throwing bread to you so that you could catch it and, and eat it because they knew you weren't being paid. Are you still there, Nish? <laughs> the bread was disgusting. Okay, well, that other guy we had on might go to jail for 25 years for his charitable act. <laughs> you got bread, babe. You got bread. Not good enough, not fancy enough. Not like the mash report bread, which is ciabatta with probably dipped in olive oil. Is that the case? He's gone now. <laughs> He's gone. He can't take the heat. Um, I, I wish it'd be so great if we could have planned that some of you could have had bread rolls to throw at the appropriate moment. If I'd thought of it, I could have just popped down to Sainsbury's. That would have been, would have been funny. But also, he's probably a bit traumatised. Be nice. Um, Amnesty International has to work with all governments in order... In fact, some of the worst governments in order to try to get people back and negotiate. Because some of the worst governments are the ones that need amnesty the most. Uh, so, in this country, Amnesty International is entirely politically neutral because they have to work with people like the Foreign Secretary and the Home Secretary to get them on side. So it doesn't really matter who's in or, or which way they voted, leave or remain, or whether they're Conservative or, or, or Labour or whoever they are. Amnesty International is completely politically neutral. Nishikumar is not. <laughs> I am. I am while I'm here because I'm an Amnesty Ambassador. When I step into the wings, no. Um, are you excited? Are you turned on for human rights? Are you going to do something this week? Excellent. Have you had an amazing show? Then please put your hands together for our exciting, our inciting, our exciting, our exciting final act. It's the incredible Roxanne. Mic check. Hey guys, how's everyone doing? Okay. She got Adam on the mind, but she won't see. Trying to get these thoughts off her mind, but they won't leave. No one to confide in, so she don't speak. She stays silent, low and discreet. Hoping it's just a phase, but these feelings repeat. It's driving her insane, the secret she keeps. But if her family find out, they'll probably throw her on the street. She needs a break, she needs a release. A safe place where she can just be. She needs to explore until she's feeling deceased. But she's a real one, and she don't want to pretend or act like she's attracted to the same as a friend. She don't want to be in hills in a dressing West End. She writes the text, but she never presses. Goes out there, feels alone She needs a best friend Cause she's here on her own If I speak my mind Tell me hey, baby, it will be alright Tell me can I confide in you I don't wanna hide my life from you Don't feel alone Don't feel alone Yes Tell me can I confide in you I don't wanna hide my life from you Tell me, tell me, tell me it will be alright Tell me it will be alright yeah. Tell me, tell me, tell me you'll be so, he's torn between the roads and studying He's out late, so he's late for school He has to hurry and he's got his mum worrying Still can't see his mum struggling So he's out hustling Got his girl on his line and he's bugging him He only sees his friends at the weekend When they go club with him The work's overloaded, it's starting to muddle him The amount he's juggling is troubling But he don't show it, that's the hood in him He needs someone to talk to or just to cuddle him Mum's on the grind, she got no time to mother him He's an only child, there's no one to brother him The hard nut life is discovering His mind's going crazy, just Bubbling, top of the class, but the roads are in love with him. His future's bright, but he can't tame the hood in it. If I speak my mind, tell me will it be alright? It's alright. Tell me can I confide hey, in you? Check. I don't wanna hide my life from you. Don't wanna feel alone. Could I pick up the phone? Tell me can I confide in you? I don't wanna hide my 
tell me, tell me, tell me you'll be alright. It's okay. Tell me, tell me, tell me you'll be alright. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. Good night. Get home safe. Thank you. It's the most spectacular show you've ever been to. And I think you will agree, you've had such a wonderful time. You will tell everybody, you will join Amnesty. Uh, tell somebody with your mouth about it. Uh, write for right, there are all sorts of things that you can do. Uh, thank you so much. It is confirmed out the back that comedians have had a chat. You are the finest audience of your generation. <laughs> say a big thank you to Lizzie Wharton mostly mostly you'll find in a show of this length there'll be two or three interpreters Lizzie's done it all on her own and she's been watching videos of everyone to get our rhythms and to understand she really has put a lot of work into this she's absolutely amazing Lizzie Wharton everybody still in the building to come out and take a final bow. Put your hands together for Shapi Gosandi, Mandip Gill, Sunitra Sarkar, Jillian Stevenson, Tiff Stevenson, Johnny Cochran, Bridget Christie, Sean Binder, Sophia Tucker, Stephen Tomkinson, Jackie Hagan, Susie Ruffle, Nish Kumar, This was one of three riotous shows in 2019 for Amnesty, an organisation that works tirelessly fighting for the millions of people around the world who are discriminated against and denied their rights simply because of who they are, who they love or what they believe in. Amnesty believes in people power and the more members we have, the stronger we are. I'd like to ask you all today to join up to Amnesty and contribute to human rights change around the world. You can do this by visiting amn.st forward slash Manchester. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.